Chapter 24 Can We Turn It Around? It's difficult to describe how it felt to leave the police service after a very intense 30-year career. I had an extraordinary mixture of emotions. There was a sense of excitement at starting a new chapter in my life and having the time to do some of the things that I'd been looking forward to for years. There was also a sense of exhilaration at no longer being owned by this massive organisation that had routinely controlled everything that I did. And when I did it, encroaching into many aspects of my private life. The Police Discipline Code holds police officers both on and off duty to much higher standards of behaviour than arguably any other profession. Police officers regularly lose their jobs and livelihoods as a result of relatively trivial incidents or lapses in judgment that would barely raise an eyebrow in other walks of life. Individual officers and the wider organisation are routinely scapegoated by the media, politicians and the public when things go wrong, which of course they regularly do. Police officers are also subjected to intense and often unreasonable levels of scrutiny over difficult decisions they made in a split second by teams of lawyers many years after the event. I find that in policing there were many occasions when it was a case of heads you lose, tails you lose. This is the main reason I didn't stay on after I'd done my contract of 30 years. I could easily have remained in the force because I was only 53. I was fit and healthy and I was very experienced. However, it had become a fairly thankless occupation and one full of worry that I would find myself blamed for something that had happened. I often used to think, why the hell do you keep putting yourself into these risky jobs that stress you out where you get no thanks for doing it? I think the answer to that is simple. I took an oath to do just that on the 13th of February 1989. And I'm proud that I carried on taking those risks right to the end. Despite this, leaving the police felt like a bereavement. The job is endlessly challenging and fascinating. The camaraderie is incredible and there's frequently a lot of laughter and piss taking. I also got to do things that were exciting, great fun, and sometimes terrifying. The sheer breadth of things that the modern police officer gets involved in is astonishing, and I would challenge any other organisation to offer the same range of career opportunities. Writing this book has been incredibly cathartic, and it's helped me make sense of some of the madness of the past 30 years. Emotionally, I've had some real highs and lows since leaving, and perhaps this is all part of the way that the human brain sifts and sorts through everything to help you reset and move forward in life. So, how do I think we can return the police to something more like the organisation that I joined, without sacrificing all the really positive things that changed for the better over that time and which definitely needed to change? My first wish would be for our police to be able to exercise a lot more discretion about what they have to deal with. Currently, officers adopt a just-in-case mindset, 
They fear that a very trivial issue might escalate into a much more serious one if they don't get involved. And if that happens, they worry they'll be blamed. Fear of blame and frivolous litigation affect policing behaviour. However, a lot of this behaviour is also driven by rigid home office rules. It's then reinforced by weak senior officers and the police complaints organisation, the IOPC, which is far too keen to throw good people under the bus if they make a mistake. We need to adopt a much more supportive regime that starts from the understanding that life is messy and often bad things happen for no reason other than the fact that one person has decided to do something bad to someone else. If this happens, it should not automatically be assumed that it was the fault of the police or another public servant. The police are currently expected to intervene in everything, which means that they're unable to deal with anything properly. We don't blame GPs or other medical professionals as soon as someone dies because they made a poor lifestyle decision. So why are we so quick to blame the police when someone dies as a result of making a poor life choice or doing something stupid? The way to make this a reality rather than a vague aspiration is to change the Home Office crime recording and incident reporting regime to focus on and prioritise only those offences that cause the greatest harm. Also, if a complainant fails to cooperate with the police, officers should be allowed to disengage quickly, rather than waste their time chasing around after them for days on end. I regularly reviewed command and control logs where the police had gone back over 10 times to try and track down an uncooperative caller without success. The only exception to this proposal should be if the offence that they're reporting is very serious, or if there's credible evidence to suggest that the victim is exceptionally vulnerable. The truth is that nobody knows what to believe anymore regarding crime statistics. The rather baffling and opaque crime survey for England and Wales routinely contradicts the official statistics of recorded crime published by the Home Office. According to the Crime Survey of England and Wales, crime has steadily dropped since 2011. However, according to Home Office statistics, crime has steadily risen. To further complicate things, the Cambridge Crime Harm Index, created by Professor Larry Sherman of Cambridge University, has adopted a third way of calculating crime by assigning a score to every incident based on the harm that it causes individuals. Using this methodology, Sherman's team calculated that the harm caused by crime in the UK was roughly three times more than either the Crime Survey of England and Wales or the Home Office statistics in 2019. So, what are the public meant to make of all this? Are crime levels increasing or decreasing? I don't understand it, and I was in the police for 30 years. The Police Foundation Review of Policing in 2020 
placed a greater emphasis on the crime survey for England and Wales data, rather than Home Office data, as a more accurate measurement. This inevitably raises the question as to why such an unbelievable amount of police time and energy is devoted to slavishly adhering to Home Office data rules. When it seems that no one, apart from the Home Office, actually believes that the government's figures are accurate. Traditional types of crime, such as burglary and car crime, have significantly fallen, but they haven't gone away. This means that investigators now need to understand how to investigate those crimes as well as crimes facilitated and enabled by technology. Much violent crime also requires the same old-fashioned investigative skills that I and others learned 20 years ago, but which appear to have been somewhat lost in the modern police force. The fall in traditional types of crime, such as burglary and car crime, is largely a result of better home and car security devices. However, burglary is now frequently a much more serious and traumatic event for the victims, due to the rise in car key burglaries, where criminals will smash their way into a home, threaten or assault the occupants to gain access to their car keys before stealing the vehicle. Such cars are also stolen by criminals who drag the victims out of their cars and assault them when they're stopped at traffic lights or in a supermarket car park. Frequently, these high-powered cars are then used by those same criminals in other serious crimes, such as armed robbery or quickly taken out of the country and sold on by organised crime groups. It's generally agreed that whilst the volume of less serious traditional crime has fallen, the volume of the most serious crime types has increased. Thus, if you're a victim of crime now, it is likely to be a very much more traumatic experience for you. There has been a 50% increase in crimes involving knives since 2011, and murders have risen by 24% since 2015. Meanwhile, certain chief constables have their poor officers driving around in rainbow liveried police cars to promote their latest hate crime initiative and encourage reporting of the dystopian sounding non-crime hate incidents. Would it be too much to suggest that the police focus on dealing with serious crime before worrying about non-crime incidents? Increasingly, antisocial behaviour, or yobs yobbing, as it was known in Coventry, has dropped off significantly in the past eight years, aside from in the most deprived neighbourhoods, where it still remains a problem. My suspicion is that the internet and all its distractions now offers antisocial teenagers something to do rather than hanging around the streets. I also believe that online gaming is a factor in the reduction of low-level crime types such as criminal damage and public order offences that went hand-in-hand hand with antisocial behaviour incidents. I also suspect that the explosion in the availability of cheap and powerful new strains of cannabis and synthetic drugs means that the teenagers who had previously have been causing these annoying antisocial problems on the streets, are now doing one of three things. They're online, playing Grand Theft Auto with their mates. 
they're on Pornhub, or they're completely off it on skunk cannabis. So, in terms of crime recording levels, I think we need to start again with a blank sheet of paper. It confuses everyone, and the whole process ties the hands of the police up in doing things that no one really cares about. Secondly, we need to have a grown-up conversation about what we mean when we talk about vulnerability. The police have become too tied up in dealing with low-level vulnerability in the community, and this has created a situation where they no longer have the resources or time to investigate crime. The perception of there being vulnerability everywhere has created a police service that is terrified of failing to protect every single vulnerable person in society. This is just unrealistic. The problem is just too big and the burden is too heavy to be carried by the police in this way. These problems need to be shared by every public sector body which need to be funded properly. We need a long-term strategy to prevent families and communities falling into despair and kids ending up feeling that they have no option other than to join criminal gangs. Next, from my many years in the police and seeing the impact of a relentless increase in demand on the organisation, I believe that we urgently need a calm, rational, evidence-based national debate on policing and a rethink on what the role of the British Police Service is in the 21st century. This needs to be completely taken away from the political realm because politicians on both sides of the divide got us into this mess in the first place. Critically, respected figures from within policing itself need to be listened to because everyone seems to think that they know better than the people who are actually doing the policing on our streets. What do the public actually want the police to do? Fight crime? Look after mentally ill people? Police the roads? Deal with social media squabbles? Stop terrorist attacks? Tackle drug dealing and organised crime? Deal with alcoholics and drug addicts sleeping in doorways? What are the priorities for policing? The answer to this question cannot be all of the above, because that's not possible or reasonable. Next, we need a commitment that is enshrined in law to keep politics completely out of policing. Policing should not be treated like a political football that gets kicked all over the place every four years based on whatever a few misguided and uninformed politicians with no understanding of public safety happen to believe. It's far too important for that, and it does nobody any good. The Labour government created a policing train set and tried to micromanage every tiny detail of what the force did, dictating the size and colour of every train, the length and width of every piece of track, when the trains were allowed to run, who was allowed to play with the trains, and a train timetable that made no sense to anyone. In 2010, the Conservative government came in wearing the size 11 hobnail boots and took half the train set away, put Tom Windsor in charge of everything and then kicked the trains all over the room. 
One of the most basic responsibilities of good government is to keep citizens safe. And Theresa May and the Conservatives failed on that front spectacularly. The irony of it was almost unbearable. There we were in the police, like a bunch of complete mugs, working day and night for years to try and keep the country safe from criminals and terrorists. Putting ourselves in harm's way, submitting ourselves to intrusive vetting procedures to make sure that we were trustworthy, and all the while the government succeeded in damaging Britain's security more than any organised crime group could ever conceive. Theresa May and her clueless advisers will undoubtedly go to their graves in denial that their unbelievably reckless behaviour ruined policing in the UK and more importantly cost the lives of dozens of young men in the inner cities. But every police officer knows the truth of what they did. Will anyone ever hold them accountable? Will they get dragged through the courts for years like police officers do when they make a mistake or they're involved in an incident that ends badly? No. A depoliticisation of policing would require the abolition of police and crime commissioners who are aligned to political parties and the return of some sort of independent body made from a truly representative cross-section of society. Membership of any political party or a criminal record would render any individual ineligible to ensure political independence. Those oversight authorities should be local or regional and in turn have their priorities defined by an apolitical national body made up of knowledgeable, non-partisan, experienced professionals working with senior police representatives who would set national priorities and allocate budgets according to fact-based assessments of risk. The Chief Inspector of Constabulary would not necessarily need to be a police officer, but without a doubt, they need to be wholly independent of government and unafraid to challenge political interference. Next, one of my real bugbears. We need to sort out police uniforms and address increasingly lax standards generally. This is a big issue for me, and I think there must be an improvement in this regard. There was an image widely circulated in the media recently of several officers from a force in the north of England standing in front of a location where the police had been called to keep the peace. They all looked incredibly scruffy. None of them were wearing a hat. Several of them had their hands in their pockets. And this, combined with those awful high-vis jackets, made them look like a bunch of security guards on a building site, in the words of an ex-officer who commented on the thread. It's difficult to understand why this is acceptable, particularly as the place was swarming with journalists and cameras, which guaranteed that they would end up in newspapers and on websites across the world. My own experience of the past 10 to 15 years was that gradually, ever so gradually, police uniforms have become more paramilitary in appearance, and this more casual look has created an increasingly casual and lax attitude amongst officers. 
As already highlighted, I think that scrapping the height restriction in police officers and adopting almost non-existent fitness requirements for existing officers have conspired, together with the sloppy-looking uniforms, to erode the gravitas and credibility of uniformed police officers in Britain, and thus the respect that they're able to command in the eyes of the public. A scruffy police officer who hasn't shaved for two days isn't going to command any respect on the street. It's all about projecting a smart, professional appearance to people of every age and social background. I believe that as the police have adopted a more casual appearance, public respect and trust has declined in response. This increasingly casual appearance has also been accompanied by increasingly casual attitudes amongst PCs towards police supervisors and amongst supervisors towards PCs. Many years ago, the only place you would have called a sergeant by his or her first name was in the pub, and even then I find that hard. For inspectors and above, it was totally unacceptable to call them by their first name. This is no longer the case. This over-familiarity has made it much harder for supervisors to challenge unacceptable behaviour or underperformance. Thus, the cycle of lax standards spirals downwards. I once sent a slovenly PC packing when he came into my office when I was detective inspector, asking to get something signed. When he said to me, Excuse me, mate, can you sign this? I went completely ballistic. I've no desire to see officers put back into old-style serge trousers that swelled up like cotton wool when they got wet, or long, great coats that made it almost impossible to run. However, there must be a greater balance between practicality and a smart appearance if the police service wants to be taken seriously by the public. If police officers look the part and present a confident, smart, professional appearance, then they can expect greater levels of public respect and trust. However, if they walk about looking, as my father would have said, like eight pounds of shit in a ten-pound bag, then no one is going to respect them. In my opinion, there needs to be a mandated national police uniform. By all means, each force can have its own local badge. But if you see a police officer patrolling in Devon, they should look exactly like a police officer patrolling in Newcastle. The organisation is fragmented enough, with every force using different systems and with different ways of doing everything. At least if everyone looked the same, there would be the appearance of national consistency. It would also enable the police to procure uniforms in one go and get better value for money from suppliers. It can't be that hard. We also need to have a serious conversation about those dreadful high-vis jackets. They look absolutely awful, particularly once they get grimy. The only exception should be for officers on traffic duty or maintaining public order. They're pointless if you want to do any proactive policing, something that seems to have been another casualty of austerity. I will say it again, you can't sneak up on someone when you're wearing a high-vis jacket. In addition, Traditional custodian helmets should be worn outside at all times. They may not be the most practical thing in the world, but they're the most iconic and reassuring symbol of British policing.
Male officers should either be clean-shaven or have full beards. If they want to grow a beard, they should grow it when they're on holiday. I know that tattoos are a very sensitive subject and very common in this day and age, but I do think they should be covered up. My message to sergeants in this, the PCs are not your mates. You can be friendly and approachable, but when time comes to give someone a bollocking, you need to be able to do that with confidence. The police is a disciplined service. Allowing officers to wander around with their hands in their pockets and without their hats on is no good for anyone. If the police want the respect of the public, they need to show that they deserve that respect. And with a smart appearance, you're halfway there. Finally, let's lose the rainbow lanyards, shoelaces and car liveries. It's patronising and it doesn't build trust in anyone. Next, the service needs to find much less bureaucratic ways of getting rid of lazy or incompetent officers. Sadly, the culture of entitlement and grievance that is now seen across wider society can also be found in a minority of police officers. This means that challenging bad behaviour, sloppy work or laziness almost inevitably results in some sort of formal grievance procedure, allegations of bullying or repeated periods of sickness and absenteeism. The systems currently in place for getting rid of lazy or unprofessional police officers are unbelievably bureaucratic, time-consuming and ineffectual. My own experience of trying to put officers through that process resulted in nothing but wasted time, frustration and massive stress. This emboldens other lazy officers who see that there's almost nothing that the organisation can do to get rid of them. Such officers just get moved on to another department and become someone else's problem. On one occasion, when I was a chief inspector, two of my sergeants became so overwhelmed and worn down by trying to get rid of one particularly disruptive and lazy officer that they ended up getting ill with stress and going off sick. You couldn't make it up. I've heard rather alarming stories that the long overdue and fantastically positive mental health message of it's okay not to be okay is now being abused by lazy officers who are basically saying, I'm feeling a bit sad today, so if it's all right, I'm going to have a few days off. This just heaps more work and pressure onto those who refuse to play the cynical game and consequently they end up getting ill. Speaking as someone who struggled periodically with severe anxiety when I was a police officer, I completely get it and I'm very relieved that the police are much more aware of mental health issues and there's definitely more that can be done in this regard. However, managers need to be savvy enough to try and explore the difference between someone who's genuinely in distress and someone who's trying it on. Policing just isn't going to be for everyone. If someone is continually finding it too upsetting and stressful, they definitely need to find a different job more suited to them. There's a contract here. If you do the job and do it well, you'll be fine. However, if you can't or won't do the job, then you probably need to leave the police. Otherwise, you'll become a burden on the organisation 
and a liability to the public. As anyone who has been diagnosed with a clinical mental health condition will affirm, there's a big difference between feeling unhappy or fed up because of something that's going on in your life and having a clinical mental health problem. Having said this, the police service definitely needs to get a grip of the perennial problem of lazy and work-shy staff. These people are unprofessional and dishonest and unprofessional and dishonest people shouldn't be in the police. The next item on my list of suggestions to improve policing would be the abolition of the archaic structure of 43 forces in England and Wales all doing things differently. At the very most there should be five or six regional forces with shared resources and common support structures. The police need IT systems that allow them all to work together and exchange information and intelligence instantly. And frontline officers and investigators need to be equipped to deal with digitally enabled crime and internet offending. Every company that I've worked for as an advisor in the past two years has told me the same thing. They've all complained that the police service is the most difficult and frustrating customer imaginable, and many of them have just given up and chosen to work with less troublesome organisations. The service is incredibly bureaucratic and slow and procurement is a nightmare. There's also a worrying tendency for many senior officers to refuse help. Perhaps this is because they think that they should have all the answers. Perhaps they're just too busy to take a step back and think about how they might do things differently. Perhaps they just don't understand what it is that external companies can offer them. What I do know is that the police force is facing a number of genuine challenges that must be overcome. Many of the solutions to these challenges already exist, but senior police decision makers need to take time out of their busy schedules to think about what can be done to fix the issues in policing once and for all. They need to work out how they can turn the tap off rather than keep mopping the floor. What tends to happen in most big forces is that they bring in extremely expensive consultancies to try and solve multiple problems in one go and they end up paying far too much money and hardly any of the problems ever get solved. These companies land and expand and before you know it they've parachuted in a small army of inexperienced consultants who know absolutely nothing about policing. In truth it would be much better to embrace smaller, innovative suppliers who can quickly solve a specific problem for a fraction of the price using agile methods. Durham and Cumbria police forces demonstrated this with the Red Sigma crime-fighting platform. Durham cemented its reputation as the most innovative and disruptive force in the UK under its iconoclastic chief constable, Mike Barton. Durham was the only force in the UK that achieved an outstanding grade for effectiveness four years in a row from the Inspector of Constabulary. Other forces would do well to swallow their pride and replicate what Durham are doing right. Next, we need to put an end to the damaging myth that all police officers are racists. As someone who has spent 30 years in the force, it's not true. It's self-defeating and it's not helping to protect our most deprived communities. 
Are there some racists in the police? Yes, as is the case in every profession and amongst people from all walks of life. However, my experience is that the overwhelming majority of police officers are good people and they try to treat everyone properly. In 2020, Professor Larry Sherman showed that young black men are 24 times more likely than young white men to be murdered and they're quite usually murdered by other young black men. The 2020 Homicide in England and Wales report by the Office of National Statistics stated, For the three-year period ending March 2018 to the year ending March 2020, when looking at the principal suspect of a homicide offence, around two-thirds, 67%, of suspects convicted of homicide were identified as white. This is a lower representation than in the general population, around 85%. Around one in five, 21% suspects, were identified as black, seven times higher than the general population, 3%. In this desperately sad and depressing scenario, you have a situation where police officers are routinely condemned for disproportionately stopping and searching young black men in the inner cities. What are the police to do? Accusing the Metropolitan Police of institutional racism has, I believe, condemned many, many young men to an early death in the past 20 years, because it has made police officers think twice before intervening in impossibly difficult situations as they know they will probably not be supported by politicians or their own leaders, and they'll be vilified by the press if something goes wrong. Rather than blaming the police, we need to start talking about how we can combat crime by helping young people in certain parts of Britain to live positive, fulfilling lives that do not leave them feeling that their only option is to turn to a life of crime and violence. To blame the police for all this is like blaming umbrellas for heavy rain. The police are trying to stop things from happening. They need to be supported rather than condemned. Therefore, we need to rebuild the neighbourhood policing structures that were dismantled by Theresa May. We need to start funding youth provision, provide mentors to kids that are going off the rails, and return school-based police officers to support teachers and nip issues in the bud before stabbings make that impossible. The horrible statistics above arise from a multitude of complex social issues. These include, but are not limited to, long-standing poverty and deprivation, low levels of aspiration and educational attainment, childhood trauma, mental health issues, addiction, a lack of positive family role models, the removal of funding for many frontline youth services, and many, many other factors that I'm not qualified to talk about. I believe that parts of the media and certain politicians declared open season on the UK police after the force was branded institutionally racist by McPherson in 1999. The British police were the best in the world, but the British establishment, with the reckless way in which they've attacked policing, and the media, with a dishonest and selective coverage of events, really don't deserve them. So this is what I think needs to change. 
What do the typical rank and file officers think needs to happen to turn things around in policing? I'm part of a large Metropolitan Police online community group that has over 10,000 members made up of retired and currently serving officers. I asked them what they thought about the current UK policing situation. I don't pretend that this was in any way an academically rigorous survey or that the results would be statistically significant, and I'm aware that online community groups do not provide objective or representative opinions. But I was curious what people would say in their most unfiltered environment. The question that I asked were, do you actually believe that the job is currently fucked? Or do you think that this is just something that the police have always said? For those who are still serving or served until recently, what are the two or three things that you would change about policing today to prevent the job becoming totally fucked? I received hundreds of comments, many of which were sent as private messages, and they were fascinating. There were lots of thoughtful responses, as well as dozens of visceral, angry, sweary responses that came as no surprise. I have distilled the comments that I received into the following key recurring themes. Firstly, the police are not in a good place after 10 years of cuts with desperately weak leadership and no operational focus. Keep politics and politicians out of policing. Rebuild community policing teams because they worked. Police leaders need to stop trying to appease the woke, vociferous minority. They do not speak for the majority of citizens in the UK. The police are now unable to deal properly with crime because they're too busy dealing with trivia and things that should not be their responsibility, like issues relating to mental illness and the protection of the vulnerable. Basic investigative skills and proactive street policing skills have been lost. We need to get basic policing skills right. Serving officers are fearful and have little confidence that they will be supported by the organisation or by the media. The changes that Theresa May made to terms and conditions of employment will ensure that people do not stay in policing for very long and this will gradually erode the deep skills and experience necessary to deal with the most complex and serious types of crime. The promotion process at every rank is seen as favouring only those who can talk the talk, and operational competence or experience is not required or recognised. There is a deep sense of weariness of constant internal change, much of which is perceived to be done to enhance someone's promotion prospects, and anyone who challenges unnecessary change is dismissed as being negative. Senior officers should stop apologising when officers have done nothing wrong and publicly speak up for them. Local officers should work from local police stations and be deployed to jobs by local control room staff who know the area and the local problems. Deviating from policy or making a mistake should not always be treated as a disciplinary issue. It should be treated as an opportunity for learning. Operational discipline and behavioural standards should be restored. 
there is far too much familiarity shown towards sergeants and inspectors. Uniforms are scruffy and do not inspire respect. Make it easier to get rid of lazy or ineffectual officers at all ranks, including senior officers. Bring back police canteens. These were seen as a welcome oasis of rest, banter, team spirit and camaraderie. Bring back proper police training schools and physical street duties tutoring. Online and distance learning does not prepare people for the rigours of the job. Stop treating stop and search as a political issue. It's a common sense policing tactic that deters people from carrying drugs, weapons and articles used to commit crime in public. Senior officers should cease their virtue signalling on social media. Social media should only be used for community reassurance and for operational purposes and not shameless self-promotion and sucking up to senior managers. There was an approximate 60-40 split between the majority who felt that the job was now properly fucked and those who thought that this was just something that had always been said. The Metropolitan Police Service was founded by Sir Robert Peel in 1829 as the world's first ever professional police force. Ever since that time, the Peelian principles have guided the style and ethos of British policing. In an attempt to highlight the underlying issues that the UK police force faces today, I have taken those nine original Peelian principles and rewritten them to reflect the depressing reality of policing in Britain in 2021. Peelian Principles 1829 versus 2021. 1829. The basic mission for which the police exist is to prevent crime and disorder. 2021. The basic mission for which the police exist is to gather data for the Home Office and to run around after time wasters who can't sort their lives out. 1829. The ability of the police to perform their duties is dependent upon public approval of police existence, actions and behaviour. 2021. The ability of the police to perform their duties is dependent upon the approval of a small minority of noisy activists, self-appointed community leaders and the media. 1829. The police must secure the willing cooperation of the public in voluntary observance of the law to be able to secure and maintain the respect of the public. 2021. The police must secure the willing cooperation of the public once they figure out all the terrible legislation that has been dreamt up by politicians, which means that no one has the foggiest idea of what they are or what they're not allowed to do. 1829. The degree of cooperation of the public that can be secured diminishes proportionately to the necessity of the use of physical force. 2021. The degree of cooperation of the public diminishes proportionately to the use of microaggressions by the police or failing to ask nicely. 1829. The police seek and preserve public favour 
not by pandering to public opinion, but by constantly demonstrating absolute impartial service to the law and by ready offering of individual service and friendship to all members of the public without regard to their wealth or social standing. 2021. The police must ignore public opinion by constantly pandering to whoever shouts the loudest and by offering friendship to everyone, including criminals, who are misunderstood and sometimes just need a hug. 1829. The police use physical force to the extent necessary to secure observance of the law or to restore order only when the exercise of persuasion, advice and warning is found to be insufficient. 2021. The police use physical force to the extent necessary to guarantee they go viral on YouTube and are then publicly shamed by all news outlets. 1829. The police at all times should maintain a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police. The police being only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen in the interests of community welfare and existence. 2021. The police at all times should maintain a relationship with the public that gives reality to the fact that the police are now exactly the same as the public, in that, just like most of the public, they rarely arrest anyone, they don't investigate crime, and they avoid getting into confrontation, if at all possible. 1829. The police should always direct their actions strictly towards their functions, and never appear to usurp the powers of the judiciary. 2021. The police should always direct their actions strictly towards their functions of gathering data for the Home Office, rather than troubling the judiciary with tiresome and complicated criminal prosecutions. 1829. The test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder, not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with it. 2021. The test of police efficiency is an excellent rating for data quality compliance and is achieved through compulsory unconscious bias training for all managers and selling off as many police stations as possible.